Now let's begin our time for questions on Genesis 21. Go ahead. Okay. Well, two things. One, so this last section that we did with Abimelech, so this is an example of him living at peace with all men as far as he can. Yet at the same time, he's still not giving his son to their daughters to marry. He's not practicing their sin. There's still a distinction between him and the way they live. But if unbelievers will treat us favorably, he would do business with them. He would live among them in a, in a sense, in a peaceful way, uh -huh. while still maintaining a separation and a distinction in terms of his worship and his morality. He's not going to, again, give Isaac to their, one of their daughters to marry. Mm -hmm. There's still going to be a distinction between the two. Correct. So not all unbelievers are going to be hostile in the same sense. Though they still are hostile to God, in a sense, yet they're willing to live in this peaceful way with Him. Yeah, that's right. So, um, just to confirm what you said. Yes, Abraham has to deal with people and unbelievers are not all equally hostile toward us. Spiritually, everybody is hostile toward God unless they are in Christ. But physically and practically, day by day, everybody is not hostile toward us in the same way. So if there are people who are willing to be peaceable with us, then we should be peaceable with them and treat them with respect, with dignity, uh, fairness, love, kindness. If they have needs, uh, emergencies, help them. Do what you can to help. And that's what Christians should be about. That's loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's also practicing the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So we should go and do likewise. Uh, as Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets, Matthew 7, 12. So, yes, all of that is correct. However, Abraham is not giving away his children to them to practice idolatry, and Abraham is not practicing idolatry in the land of the Philistines. He does not believe when you are in Rome, do as the Romans do. When he's in Philistia, he's not going to worship Dagon. But many people cross the line and they think because we are supposed to be at peace with unbelievers, therefore, when they recommend or they entice us to worship idols or to practice fornication or anything like that, we should not do that. There is a line that we have to draw and boundaries that we have to keep when dealing with unbelievers. So, that, okay, so then that, uh, into my next one, there was, there, there was more hostility then for Abraham coming from within his own household in the sense of Ishmael and Hagar than there was even from these outside pagans. So, in the, in, it's just something that I think you see in the Bible and then also many times in your own experience is that the most vile, obstinate, um, contentious people are those who have the name Christian or the name Jew, or in this case, Ishmael has the name of a son of Abraham, but he is more hostile to the things of God than even Abimelech and Phicol who are idol worshipers. Yes. And that was the case with Christ as well. The Jews who had the name Israel 
and with Paul, and, and not that all pagans were friendly toward them, but you do see that much of the hostility arose from within their own yes. ranks. And then, and, you know, my, our own experiences within the church, many times the most hostile people are a part of the church. That's right. That's right. Sometimes the most hostile are a part of the church. Um, the reality of this, Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Actually, we'll start in 28. Acts 20, 28. The reality of the fact that some of the most hostile will be those from the inside. 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. All right, we're supposed to... Elders or pastors are supposed to watch over the church of God, protect the church of God, purchase with the blood of Christ. Correct? And in 29, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Well, what did Christ say? Savage wolves, they will come in sheep's clothing. Right. Savage wolves will come in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7 uh, 13 to 29, they will come in sheep's clothing. So, we have to watch out. So they will appear to be Christians, but they're not Christians. They will appear to be sheep, but actually they have the sheep's costume, but they are at heart, in nature, they are wolves, right? They will come in, not sparing the flock. So not sparing the flock means... Their appetite is to devour the sheep, to take away the sheep, to tear, to kill, destroy the sheep, and take them away as their prey, right? That's what wolves do. And 30. And from among your own selves men will arise. That means that currently, you, I said there will be people coming from the outside on the inside, but... It's often the case that there are already men on the inside that are untrustworthy. Already in the inside, on the inside, untrustworthy. From among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Which is what he said in 29, not sparing the flock. What's their purpose when they sp speak perverse things? To draw away, in order to draw away, so that they draw away the disciples after them. That's what happens. This is clearly explaining this um, problem of divisiveness within the local church that this happens. And that's what happened to Abraham. From within his own household, yes. there arose up a, a tormentor, a persecutor, a divisive person. And while Abraham, to that point, was seeking to live peacefully, seeking to raise his, do, do what's right and good. And in the term of Abimelech, 
whenever peace was available, he pursued it and took it. But whenever it became clear with Ishmael that there was no peace with this man, even though he was his own son, he had to get rid of him and yeah. send him away, which, again, is, is like church discipline. Yes. When these people arise who uh, manifest themselves as divisive, problems, you know, uh, contentious people, then we just have to, we have to separate ourselves from them and send them away. Yes. And that's not unloving. It's not unloving. It's not unloving to send people away because it's loving towards the true believers who remain so that they don't have to be tormented by the factional, contentious behavior of people who are in there for the wrong reason. The wolves in sheep's clothing seeking to destroy the sheep. So it's loving towards the sheep. And also, it's initially, it's the due punishment that the unbeliever deserves when he is sent away from the local church. It is initially the due punishment that he deserves. Now, somebody might cringe at the thought that we in the church are supposed to punish anybody by sending him out. However, the Bible uses the word punishment. It's not my word. It's the Spirit's word. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 verse 6. 2 verse 6. If Paul is speaking in reference to the man who was committing adultery in 1 Corinthians 5, that the Corinthians should send him out of the church, remove him from the church. If that's what he's referring to, notice what he says in 2 verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. The majority of the people of the Corinthians in whatever case it was, whether it's the 1 Corinthians 5 case or some other case, they did afflict punishment, inflict punishment by the majority on the one who deserved it. And he said, it's sufficient. And after it was sufficient, verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So if that man repented, now the Corinthians, the majority of the Corinthians, should now forgive that repentant man because he has had sorrow over his sin, and now forgiveness should be offered to him and reconciliation or full restoration. That's what he's saying. Um, one more place where Paul commends them for their punishment of sinners by confronting them and even to the extent of removing them from the church. 2 Corinthians 7 2 Corinthians 7, 11. 7, 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. When they had godly sorrow, which leads to salvation, verse 10, 
that godly sorrow produced the following in them. Verse 11, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and avenging of wrong. Avenging of wrong. So indignation and so forth. Vindication, indignation, avenging of wrong. They wanted to do what was right, and they if they're going to avenge wrong, what does avenging wrong have to do with? It has to do with punishment, right. right? Some kind of judgment toward the person who deserves it. All right, now, it's clear the Bible does expect that, that there has to be this separation. Now, I want to illustrate, because people don't often look at it this way. We saw from Acts 20 that there can be unbelief in the church and we have to be aware of that, right? In the local church, we have to be aware of those men. But to illustrate in the family, unbelief in the family, how about John 7, verse 5? John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. For not even his brothers were believing in him. We know from chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 15 and following, that eventually his brothers did believe, but not at this point, and they were divisive in his own family. Jesus' own brothers were not believing in him, and they were mocking him at, in John chapter 7. They were not believing in him. So there's unbelief in the family unbelief in the family, then Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 34, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He clearly tells us he came to bring division in households. Why? Because some in the household believe, Others in the household do not believe. This is the way it always happens. And we can illustrate this um, extensively. The common examples, you, you can, everybody knows these examples. In Adam's household, he had Cain and Abel. Right. In, in his own family, he had Cain and Abel. Right? In uh, Noah's family, he had Ham and he had his other two sons, Jeff, uh, um, Japheth and Shem. Right? So Ham did not believe. Check Genesis chapter 9, 24 to 27. He did not believe. So he had that conflict in his own family. Noah did. Right? Abraham had the conflict with Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, Isaac had a conflict between Jacob and Esau. Correct? So divisions occur. These are very plain and clear throughout the scriptures. Within the family within the church all the time. So don't be surprised by it, but know how to deal with it, right. like we're talking about, like Abraham dealt with it. So his love for God had to be greater than his love for Ishmael. Yes. 
Yes. We can't, so we can't use that excuse that, well, it's my son or it's my family member to justify sin. No. That, that's what he means in Matthew 10. You have to love Christ, Christ more, more, meaning you have to do what's right. Even if it's your own son mm-hmm. who does it, then you have to sin more. Yeah. So this is really, again, shows the faith and the righteousness of Abraham. It's yeah. his love for God mm-hmm. and Christ in that he was willing to do something that would be very hard for him. Yeah. That's right. He was willing because he had Christ above all else in his life. Yes? Um, and, and forgive me if you already mentioned it, I just didn't catch it, but in 21 verse 13, it says, And of the Son of a man I will make a nation also because he is your seed. Um, is he, because I know that you mentioned that in Genesis 16, that God promised to Hagar that he would, he would make a nation out of Israel, right? But here he says the reason why he's going to make a nation is because he's Abraham's seed. So is that is that in reference to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17? Or, or is it just you know, just a special blessing that God is giving Ishmael? Like, I think it's God. the second. I think it's the second. Okay. Because Abraham, you are um, honored in my sight so much that I will bless even your reprobate son because he's coming from your own loins. And it's not because, just be, it's not because that he promised, you know, a nation to come from him instead of, instead of Well, he did promise that. Right, right, but it's like, that's not the reason why he's blessing Ishmael that way. So, so I guess in, in, in 17 4 it says you will be a father of a multitude of nations. You know, does that have any part of its fulfillment in Ishmael becoming a nation? Yes, it does in that way. 1610. Let's read these verses and then I'll I'll answer or summarize. 1610. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, to Hagar, I will greatly multiply your descendants or your seed singular, so that they shall be too numerous, too many to count. So he he first says it to her, okay, not to Abraham. And then in chapter 17, 17, 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Right? Then... In chapter 17, 1720, 1720. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, which means it's a petition from Abraham. I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. And then those are enumerated for us in chapter 25, the 12 and those descended from them. Um, and then the, the ones that we saw in 21, 21, 13, and in 21, 18, I will make a great nation of him. So in relation, because of his proximity or his relationship to Abraham, he is blessed. But he's not blessed because he's a part of the covenant. Right. Now, this 
This is even in the book of Genesis in other ways. For example, um, remember when Abimelech said, God is with you? Okay, let's carry on that thought. Look at Genesis 39. Genesis 39. Joseph is enslaved, sold in Egypt, right? Genesis 39. 39.1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. The, that's the phrase. God is with you, Abimelech said to Abraham. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became successful, a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And then it says in three, now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he had uh, owned, he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him there, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. And then a transitional sentence for the next paragraph. So we... See here, God's with Joseph, but because God's with Joseph, whatever Joseph does benefits the unbelievers around him. That's, I think, the same with Abraham and Ishmael. Because right. even in 17, he says, from my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, as opposed to Ishmael. Yes, as opposed to Ishmael. Okay, so this illustrates, again, how we were saying that unbelievers will be blessed by God. Genesis 39 is another example of this, right? Blessed by God, and it's clearly called favor, blessing, right? Clearly called that. So we have to call it that. If the Bible calls it that, we have to call it that. Potiphar was blessed. In his household, they were blessed. Um, but now, your question brings up the other aspect of it, that they are blessed in relationship to us also. Sometimes they will be blessed in relationship to us because God blesses us or because they treat us kindly, God kindly treats them. Right. So they are blessed in relation to us. Potiphar is an example of that. And Ishmael is an example of that. Because of his proximity or relationship to Abraham, he's blessed. Now having said that, in case you have not heard, there is a book written by Tony Ma'aluf, M-A-A-L-O-U-F, M-A-A-L-O-U-F, Tony is his name. And this book was endorsed by Paige Patterson, the ex-president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the book argues, Ma'aluf argues for a different covenant, a salvific, eternal covenant for Ishmael and his descendants. 
that their way of salvation is not the same way as it is for Isaac. God worked through Ishmael and his descendants in such a way to give them salvation different from the way in which he worked through Isaac's descendants because God established a covenant also with Ishmael. If you have not heard that, this book supports it. And this book is, was actually an encouragement from his advisors at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary, the professors and his advisors, um, at least one of them, he told me personally, he, he said, that this one recommended that he do his research on this very issue. So he wrote his, um, his PhD or THD, whatever doctorate it was, he wrote it on this subject and then he published it in a book. So this shows that it's not just this one man who wrote the book who believes it, but there are others who believe it. And I submit to you, many, many people believe this. Many, many people believe this. So Just they, ask them. Just ask them. So what they're saying is the Bible is a liar. Yes. Fundamentally, if you boil it down to that, they're saying the Bible is a liar. The Bible's not true. Yeah. Was that an endorsement of Islam? Yes. Okay, then the question comes, is, is that an endorsement of Islam? Yes. And knowing this professor... He's very, 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 very soft, <laughs> soft very, 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 very. on explaining that Muslims or Mohammedans are lost. That they cannot be saved unless they believe in Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. Because Mohammedans deny the sonship of Christ. They say he was not the Son of God. Absolutely not the Son of God. They deny His Sonship, and they deny that He actually died on the cross. He just swooned, but He did not die on the cross. So say Mohammedans. And if He did not die on the cross, He did not rise from the dead. So, the identity and the ministry of Christ are completely undermined in Mohammedanism. So, that contradicts the Bible too. And therefore, you cannot be saved according to Scripture, yet these people, so-called scholars, say, yes, they are saved. So they, so they, in doing that, they said, they make God confused and contradictory because they set one covenant that he made against the other covenant. Yes. Because the covenant, they say, is legitimate with Ishmael, leads to a salvation that includes the persecution of the children of the other covenant God set forth, with Isaac. Yes, yes. They made God confused or contradictory, and the implications of it is this strife between the two. That's right. Oh, by the way, um, there's a lot of propaganda about Mohammedanism. People think, and Mohammedans say, that Mohammedanism existed all the way back to the time of Abraham, Noah, and Adam. They say that Adam, Noah, 
Abraham, so forth, they all believed in Mohammedanism, the doctrines of Mohammedanism, Islam. That's what they say. And people think that Ishmael was a Mohammedan. No. Now, it is true that the Arabic people, they are descendants of Ishmael. So in ethnicity, it's true that one of Ishmael's descendants became the Arab uh, nation, right? That's true from Genesis 25, 12 to 18. So the ethnicity part of it is true, but not the religious part of it. The religion was concocted by Satan along with Muhammad in, from AD 570 to 630, roughly that period of time. From AD 570 onward, AD 570, Abraham lived in 2000 BC. They even say Jesus was a Mohammedan. But all of this is complete lies. All of it is complete lies. Mohammedanism is Satanism. What, what religion did the descendants of Ishmael that lived in proximity to the people of Israel, what, what, were, what gods were they worshiping? They were worshiping pagan gods, idols, different idols, yes. And some of that is in the history of Mohammedanism. Well, the worship of images, the worship of, of stones or the veneration of stones, like the, uh, the stone that's in uh, Mecca, that they, when they go on their annual pilgrimage, things like that, all of that. So superstitionism, uh, spiritism, um, animism, idolatry, this is what Arabic religion was until the time of Muhammad. And then Muhammad incorporated some of that and he mixed it in with Gnosticism, so-called Christian Gnosticism. He mixed it with Christianity and he mixed it with Judaism. And so these four elements at least are the, the concoction of Muhammad. And Satan. And Satan, yes. Not, not the angel Gabriel, not God and Gabriel. Does this man still teach at Southwestern? I believe he does. I haven't heard otherwise. I believe he does. Yeah. But you don't. But I don't know. <laughs> no. Actually, a, a, a couple of years later, I went to one of these academic annual meetings, and I saw him there a couple of years later. Um, and actually, it was also after I was terminated from Oklahoma Baptist University. Okay on unjust grounds. I was terminated from there. And so he knew me from Southwestern. I went to OBU and then I went to an annual meeting and he saw me there and he asked me how it's going and all. And I said, well, uh, not going well. He said, why not? Well, what happened at Southwestern, something similar happened at OBU. He goes, oh, uh, well. And then he, he gives me some advice. He says, just don't say openly or clearly what you believe. Just, just, he actually told me that. He just said, you know, just, just say this and then, then say that and, and then it'll be fine. You'll, you'll be okay. No, you'll keep your position. That's, what he, that's the advice he gave me. Is that verbatim or is that paraphrasing? No, ver, the first part is verbatim. The first, he said, don't say openly and clearly 
what you believe. Th that part is verbatim. You were given the same instruction at OBU, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was given that before I was terminated. I was given the same words, something like that, at OBU. Yeah. He's, he said, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to teach, but just reconsider. Just do it this way. Just reconsider the way. Just re reconsider the way you presented. That's how he said it. <laughs> Which was. Well, and then the common way in academia is you speak out of both sides of your mouth. Right. That's the common way in academia. Go along, get along. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next. Next question. It mentions the. Land of the Philistines. Isn't this long before the Philistines came about? So, okay, this mentions the land of the Philistines. Is this not long before? Okay, according to scholars, they think that the Philistines didn't really, concretely, in terms of historical evidence, come into existence until about twelve or thirteen hundred BC. But Abraham lived in 19 and 2000 BC. So there's a separation of a, about 700 years. What happened? And so is the Bible right or is history right? Well, for one, I'm sure if evidence surfaces, they will find evidence in history, eventually, if it surfaces, that there were Philistines who lived before that time. There were indeed Philistines who lived before that time. But until then, why is it that because it's not in history, therefore the Bible is wrong? Right. That is the false conclusion that they arrive at. Because it's not in the Bible, therefore... I mean, because it's not in history, therefore it's wrong, the Bible is wrong. Why can't the Bible be right and history be silent or unextant, unavailable? Right? We don't know everything about history. And there are gaps. Right? So, why do you have to assume that the Bible is for fictitious and history is correct? So that's one problem with that approach. Another problem, not necessarily with this issue of the existence of the Philistines, but with other issues, they assume that the evidence that they call history that some source that has been discovered says this or that about whatever person or whatever incident or whatever kingdom, that that necessarily is telling the truth. Right. Well, how do we know that that source is telling the truth? They assume automatically that that source is telling the truth and the Bible is not. The Bible has to be wrong. Why do you do that? that does that not show a bias? Right? They claim that they are objective. We're just fair. You know, we just let the, the science speak for itself. It just speaks for itself. That's what they say, but that's not what they do. That's not how they practice it. Everybody has assumptions. Everybody has methods. Everybody has goals. So determine what they are and figure out if the assumptions are valid, the methods are valid, and the goals are valid. Their goal is destruction of the Bible and the Christian faith. So the moment you know that, you know, it's dubious. It's dubious from the, the outset. Does that answer your question about the history? Yeah, because I specifically was asking because that's what my commentary was saying, that 
it was a modernization of the speaking of the people in that area. Because since Moses, I guess, wrote it, I don't know. Is he, that's, he says, uh, in light of this, the term may be used here and elsewhere to replace an earlier obscure term. Genesis contains various examples of such modernizations. So basically he's saying there would have been an obscure term that the people in that area was called and to make it more modern or easier to understand of what the area it's speaking of, it used the term Philistines because people who this was written for or would, would understand, oh, that's speaking of this area down here. Okay. So I think that's what they're trying to say. That's okay, your study Bible is saying that. Now, which I have lots of, I had another question or comment about the commentary on my Bible. Okay, all right. So, so to address your study Bible, it is true that that happens sometimes, even in the Bible. It is true that that happens sometimes, even in the Bible. Um, one example of that is in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter... First Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. Okay? So Ebenezer is one city or town, right? Ebenezer. But then, sometime later, chapter 7, verse 12, 7, 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzpah and Shen, and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now, if Ebenezer the stone becomes the name of the city or town where the stone is, then this would be one example of something called Ebenezer, because everybody would know it to be Ebenezer based on the incident of chapter 7. If, that, if these two chapters can be correlated, this would be one example. Okay. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because in history, in the United States history, this has happened to New York City. If you read about New York City in the 1500s and early 1600s, your history books are going to call New York City, New York City. But what was New York City called until I think sometime in the early 19, uh, 1600s, uh, maybe about 1619 or 1625, 2425, around that period, New York City became New York City. But what was that city called before New York City? New Holland. It was called New Holland because the Dutch colonized that place and named it after Holland, their homeland. But when the British conquered the Dutch there, they named it after a place in Britain, York. So they called it New York. So instead of New Holland, they called it New York when the British conquered the Dutch in New York City. But when you read history, if you don't know that sequence of events... Everybody just says New York City. It's always been called New York No, it hasn't always been called New York City. When you're talking about pre-1624 or 25, pre-1624, 25, it wasn't called New York City. But a history book will say, in New York City in 1575, this happened. Well, is the history book wrong? 
Or is the history book merely using a convention, an easy way to refer to something of the past? Okay? So this happens. In, uh, I could give another English example. When there is an ex-president, ex-presidents of the United States are typically not called ex-presidents. What are they called? President. President. But they should be, if you want to be clear, especially to a foreigner, ex-president so-and-so. You should say it that way to be clear, because if you just say president, a foreigner is going to think, well, I thought, uh, we're in 29, I thought Donald Trump was president. So you have to clarify. So these idioms or these um, means of speaking are used in different languages. So I grant, in principle and in practice, that that does happen in the Bible and outside of the Bible. But often, and I don't know specifically with that study Bible, if that author of the comment is suspicious of the Bible generally in this part and it thinks the Bible is unhistorical, unreliable, it often happens that that is the case and that author, that he might believe that. So in that case, if that is his premise, then why do you have to do that to chapter 20? Because He's doing it in chapter 20, not with inner biblical references, but assuming that outside the Bible, oh, the Philistines, they would have come into existence about 12 or 1300 BC, not before that. He's assuming that and then casting doubt on the Bible. That's likely what he's doing, that author is doing. Okay? So your follow-up. Yeah, so, and he's, Right before that part that I quoted, he talks about historical evidence in 11, 1200 BC. Oh, okay. So he talks about that. But this, my Bible is an ESV commentary Bible, right? Which primarily is, is reformed yeah. in most of the people who comment. Yeah. Which, you know, usually you would automatically tend to think they're more theological, more sound. Yeah. However, there are several that are quite obviously hostile. And this one, though, this commentator on this book, it seems more subtle, but you you mentioned that he you know wants to call it a doubt, the authenticity of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. And I can see that he's more subtle in that over when it talks about uh, Ishmael laughing and mocking, he says there that he said this is ambiguous with mocking, right? So it, it this could be saying he's mocking. So he's good there. But then he goes on to say the verbal use here possibly favors mocking. So he had the word possibly. He wouldn't be firm on it. Then he goes on to say, Galatians 4.29 takes this position. And so that immediately made me think, well, if Galatians 4.29 takes a position, then it's not possibly. It is. So he in that calls into doubt Paul's interpretation, which then calls into doubt all of Paul's writings. Yes. We don't know Paul's truth. Yes. He may or may, may not be right on his interpretation. Paul may or may not be right on his interpretation of this laughing here. Okay. Even though Paul says it was mocking. Does he say verbatim Galatians four twenty nine takes the position? Galatians four twenty nine follows this interpretation. Okay. Ishmael was probably making fun of Isaac's role as Abraham's promised son. So he still takes the position that he probably is, but it's just making fun. So it's a matter of he lessens the sin. Yes. Just making fun of it. Yes. And it's highly likely because of the punishment 
that he was actually, it was life threatening. Very hostile. Hostile, and, very hostile. Heading towards life threatening. Yes. Okay. Now, you did correct to observe that. And the way he said Galatians 4.29 says, or follows, or something. Now, that's right. What you said is right. So it t- calls into question what Paul says. But guess who said Paul says? You said it. He should have said, the Apostle Paul, he should have said in his commentary, the Apostle Paul wrote, or inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Apostle wrote. He should have said something like that to make it absolutely clear that Paul is an authority to have the correct and only interpretation of that verse. But he didn't say it that way. He just said, Galatians 4.29 said. And I don't know the name of the author, so I don't know his history, but if he says it like that, there's another danger. He didn't mention Paul by name. And since he didn't mention Paul by name, he might even have doubts as to whether Paul wrote Galatians. When, if, if, if he is one of those commentators, commentators who doubts that Paul wrote Galatians, then he would be extremely liberal because liberals generally believe Paul wrote Galatians and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and a few other letters. They have doubt on whether he wrote Timothy, Titus, and a few others, but they are very clear, liberals are generally very clear, oh yeah, Paul wrote Galatians and Romans and whatever. They're clear. But apparently he's not clear. He may not be clear. I don't know unless I do research on that author. But often all of that goes together. If they just say Galatians says, but not Paul says. So a good commentary, he could have brought out the fact that there's contention. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Saying, hey, you know, some people think this is possibly mocked. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But Galatians says this, so it's obviously mocked. That would have been a better... That would have been... saying it's possibly this. It almost sounds like they want to toe the line and make sure that they don't offend either way. They did not be firm. It's Desmond Alexander is the commentator here. Okay. Yeah, he, he is, um, he, he's been around the block a long time, but I'll, I'll have to check more to know on him. Desmond Alexander. Okay, that all? All right, um, thank you for your time.